Our text today will be 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Yahweh, our God, we are, are thankful for the gift of your word and, and this time to examine it together. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth in your word. You would open our ears to hear what you would have said to us through your Holy Spirit as we examine the text together. And I pray you would continue to open our lips that we may proclaim your praise. So may Christ increase and may I decrease. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now that of course is the opening of the Apostle John's gospel account. So I can't take any credit for those words. But I bring it up not only to show uh, the similarities between our text uh, today and the opening of his gospel account, but also to show how John's unique descriptions of Jesus go together. So rather than simply stating Jesus by name, John chooses further to add a title to him, moving from the word or logos in Greek uh, from the text of of his gospel account to the word of life. Now, in Greek philosophy, the term logos was used as a, as a title for a, a nebulous organizing principle of the known world. So in a bit of sanctified and, and Holy Spirit-inspired redefinition, John borrows this concept in his gospel account to shine a spotlight directly onto Christ. Similar to how Paul used the altar or the statue of the unknown God in Acts to testify to Christ. So John baptizes this well-known concept from the time to introduce the creator, Christ. So in our text today, we should have no confusion at all about who John is talking about when he talks about the word of life. This person, the eternal only begotten Son of the Father is not only the creator of all things, but the one who bestows life, eternal 
life. Jesus, who came in the flesh and lived among us, was made manifest among mankind, who lived in absolute sinlessness and yet carried all the sin for all of his people on the cross, who died, who descended to Hades, was resurrected, ascended bodily to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he now intercedes for his people. All of that glorious truth is packed into this one title, the word of life. This is the God with whom we must reckon. John wants his entire audience, including us, to know Jesus and to know about Jesus. But one of the things I've come to appreciate more and more about the Bible as I've read it over the years is the fact that every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but packaged, according to providence, in different literary genres and in different human authors' personalities. For instance, think of Paul's approach in his letters. We'd call it very logical, linear, um, while John's is often described as circular, I would even say poetic. Maybe another way to state this would be that, that Paul writes dissertations and John writes symphonies. Both are useful and necessary. Both make for instruction and for delight. But John is especially excellent in my estimation at taking key themes and emphases and, and, and remixing them a bit, playing the motif of light and darkness, switching to a motif of, of fellowship and love, letting them merge at a later time with even greater emphasis. And I hope we'll be able to see a little bit of that this morning as we look at this text together. There are four key points in these four verses that ground the Apostle John's aims for his entire letter. And I hope to bring these into full focus as we consider this morning for our own benefit. John is highlighting four important aspects of reckoning with the living God, reckoning with the word of life. The first two are foundational must-haves acquired by faith, and the second two are outcomes of being given those must-haves. So first is the knowledge of the word of life. Second is the proclamation of the word of life. Third, fellowship with and in the word of life. And then finally, complete joy in the word of life. And hopefully we'll see how all of these things are actually quite tightly interlinked. So first, the knowledge of the word of life. John's first words related to the word of life are references to his own experiences with the incarnate Christ, along with other dear eyewitnesses as well. He wasn't the only one. That's why he says we there instead of I or, or me. But John was never one to actually directly refer to himself if there was no particular reason for him to. In fact, we only know him in his gospel account by his own term for himself, the disciple Jesus loved. That's not to mean that Jesus didn't love the others, but for John, putting Jesus forward was of the utmost importance. Now John, however, does call us to consider 
the tactile experience of an eyewitness. He says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There's no ambiguity here. John is being crystal clear that the manifest incarnation of Christ was a real and historical event of which John was one of many eyewitnesses. But not merely an eyewitness, as if he was in the back of the crowd staring at Jesus from a a long distance. No, he was a close eyewitness, a close ear witness. He was a close hand witness as well. One who had seen the face of, heard the physical voice of, and touched the human body of the eternal Son of God in the flesh. So just, just think for a moment about some of these incredible experiences that John had with his Lord and our Lord. He served at the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. He beheld Jesus' healing signs, whether it was raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, just to show a taste of Jesus' power over the grave, or healing the woman with the issue of blood, or healing the centurion's servant without even touching the man. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw Jesus' clothes turn an unearthly white and his face shine like the sun. He heard him talking with Moses and Elijah. John also knew enough not to try to put up tents for them to camp there forever, uh, which is a point in John's favor. John heard the voice of the eternal Father speak from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration and state yet again his pleasure with his only begotten Son. He sat at the most honored place at the Last Supper, reclining against the very chest of his Savior. He was served this meal by Jesus' own hands, soon to be pierced with nails. He received the instruction from the cross to look after Mary, taking her to be his own mother, and he as her earthly son. He ran to the tomb, even overtaking Peter's own run, to see for himself the empty tomb with his own eyes. And he shared yet another meal with Jesus, this time the resurrected Jesus, a simple fish breakfast on the beach, after the fishermen briefly uh, went back to their, uh, their old way of life. Now, there are more glorious examples that we could tell from Scripture. In fact, John himself says that many more things were left unwritten of Jesus' earthly ministry because the world could not contain the books that would be written. But note in our text today that John is perfectly content to say just this, that he's seen, heard, and touched the incarnate Christ. He gives no other detail here. Wouldn't that be our temptation if we were in his place? Let me tell you all the cool stories about the time I spent with our Lord. Right? Let me regale you with the sights, the wonders, uh, maybe the tender conversations before they camped for the night while out on ministry. Seeing Jesus walk on the water, how much maybe he and his fellow disciples missed Jesus when he went out early in the morning to pray alone. Or maybe how guilty John felt when he and his fellow disciples fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus was sweating blood. 
Yet we don't get that here. John doesn't privilege his own eyewitness history over and against those who weren't there at the time. His experience as a close disciple and now apostle does not trump the experience of Christ that the later believers would have. In a very real sense, we who believe in Christ here today have the same access and knowledge of the eternal Son of the Father that John had because we have spiritual knowledge of him. We too have seen him, heard him, and felt him. John saw Jesus with his own two eyes, but we who have the experience of salvation have seen Jesus with the eyes of our hearts, enlightened by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 16-18 speak to this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Another passage, 1 Peter 8 and 9, 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Loving Christ is not dependent on seeing him with your physical eyes, like John was fortunate enough to do. No, we behold him with our hearts, and we love him. Peter, also a powerful eyewitness to Christ, commends Christians in in our condition. We know the same Christ that Peter proclaims without the visual confirmation, and we are saved. That should give us great assurance. Have you seen him with the eyes of faith? We too have heard him. So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. When we hear the word read, we hear Christ. When we read the scriptures in our personal devotions, we hear Christ. The inspired word of God we hold in our hands this morning is his authentic voice speaking to us. We don't have to wait for a a still, small voice to to come tell us something, as others uh, say that we should. We don't need to sit and quiet our minds and simply wait for him to say something to us. He is speaking where he has always been speaking, in the pages of Scripture, the only rule of faith and life. Have you heard him with the ears of faith? We also have felt him if we've called upon his name. We sense the closeness of our covenant-keeping God who has filled each and every believer with the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is not a mere physical feeling or or an emotional high when we get excited. this This is the experience of God in the innermost parts of ourselves, that which we call our hearts, um, and if we were in the, in the Old Testament times, we might, uh, we might call that the bowels. 
but it's the same thing. We sense and we know the unmistakable changing of our nature by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and his removal of our sin from us, the new creation. Have you felt the embrace of the Savior? So next, John highlights the importance of proclaiming the word of life in verses 2 and 3. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. This message isn't just for the individual Christian to, to believe and then bottle up inside. We're not meant to be silent believers going about our business and then conducting our faith only in the privacy of our, our own homes. No, instead, the, the hearty knowledge of the word of life comes with speaking and proclaiming that same word. Jesus is referred to as word for a reason. He must be spoken of. Now, this cannot be any, any kind of proclamation. This proclamation must be grounded in the knowledge of the word of life. In the words of life as given in the pages of Scripture. We're not permitted to mess with the message. Either by adding to it or taking away from it or turning either to the left or to the right. That's the core purpose for John to even mention his experience, not to brag or, or to boast about his time with Christ, but instead to validate the truthfulness of Jesus' teaching in life with his testimony. Right? John's, John's personal experience is not the gospel. John writes of his personal experience in the gospel account, but the saving message of the gospel is not what John saw and heard. His testimony attests to the truthfulness of the gospel that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if John's fascinating and rich testimony isn't the gospel, surely your testimony isn't the gospel either. Our own experience of knowing Yahweh our God should not be the centerpiece of our evangelism. There's an example, actually multiple examples, uh, from Acts and in other epistles, uh, other than what we're studying today, that show the Christ-centeredness of the apostles' preaching and teaching, of their witness before the pagan world that they lived in. Our message, too, should be Christ-centered, not us-centered. The apostles never waste an opportunity of speaking to a crowd by merely insisting on their own visions and experiences, though inspired by the Holy Spirit. No, the spotlight is always on the word of life. The spotlight is on Christ. They quote deeply from the Old Testament, even as their words are being codified by Yahweh in the New Testament in real time. They always point back to divine revelation. Not to themselves, to preach the message of repentance and belief in Christ. We must rely on God's word. 
Because the saving power of the gospel is not in you, and it's not in me. And we should all thank God for that. Recall these words from from Paul in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's, It's the power of God unto salvation. No one else's power. The power of my testimony could never bring someone to faith. And to reiterate from earlier, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the very heart of of the banner that hangs in front of this pulpit. We preach Christ. We don't preach ourselves like many celebrity pastors do today. Folks like Stephen Furtick or Mike Todd, who insist on private revelations or exegeting their own mind-numbing stories from their personal life behind tables or glass pulpits on a Sunday. No, we preach Christ alone. Christ, who died, was buried, descended to Hades, resurrected, ascended, and crowned Lord of all. That's the task of every pastor, teacher, and elder on the Lord's day. And it's a heavy task. But it's also the task and delight of every blood-washed saint in the church, the task and delight to magnify our great God at every opportunity before a a sin-darkened and unbelieving world. We must proclaim the eternal life that is bought for us through Christ alone and applied to us by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, and as taught, by scripture alone. And there's purpose behind this proclamation. First and foremost, the purpose is to generally call unbelievers to repentance and belief in Christ, but also to see them adopted into Yahweh's family and to share in fellowship. That brings us to the third point. Fellowship in and with the word of life. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's an all-too-common expression in the evangelifish world. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. Since when did those two things become opposites? Since when did religion go out the window in order to have a relationship with God? Or since when did we have to forego communion with God in order to be religious? Now, we all know that there is dead religion within the physical or within the visible Christian church where people merely go through the motions of their church's tradition without the, uh, the religious affections, to quote Jonathan Edwards, that animate their faith. Instead, they live out a dead faith. But dead religion does not negate the vibrant religion that we've been called to in Christ. We gather here and we observe the ordinary means of grace, not only because we're called to do so, but because we have a relationship with God. We come to worship. We come to exercise our religion because we have a relationship with God. These, These things go together 
It's called being in fellowship with Yahweh. We were created to be in fellowship with our creator. Think of Adam, who walked with Yahweh in the garden from the moment of his creation until his fall. God didn't need this fellowship in order to be made complete, right? God needs nothing. Uh, he is self-sufficient. He has uh, a great theological word for it. He has a seity. He has no needs. No, he desires that fellowship with the creation that he has called very good. Now, again, John doesn't leave us to wonder here. Within his meditation upon fellowship, he actually lists three fellowships that actually are one. We have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the church. Now we know from, from Jesus' own teaching that to know the Son is to know the Father. But we have the Trinitarian blessing of having fellowship with not only the entire Godhead, but the individual persons of the Holy Trinity as well. Right? We fellowship to begin with our Heavenly Father when we consider the amazing love with which he loved us, sending his own son to make us his adopted sons and daughters. This truth of God being our heavenly father is a completely new concept introduced by none other than his eternal son. Never has Judaism considered this. Never has any false religion from across the world ever considered the idea of God as father. No, instead we're instructed to think of God as our Father. And in Jesus' model prayer, he instructs us to pray to our Father in heaven in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is granted by the power of the Holy Spirit, who wasn't specifically named here, but his presence and our fellowship with him is very much real and sweet. Our access to sweet fellowship with the Father is only granted through fellowship with the Son. In fact, these fellowships come together particularly well in one verse, 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful, meaning God the Father. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God our Father is faithful to his eternal decree of salvation, codified in the covenant of redemption within the Trinity before time, that he would call a people for his own possession through the Son and the jaw-dropping power of the Holy Spirit. That he would raise the dead to life. He would reconcile the cosmic traitor. He would cleanse the wretched slave of his sin. He would bring him or her into fellowship with his or her own creator, transferring them out of darkness and into marvelous light. Now, there's even still more in reference to our fellowship with the Son. And this, uh, I want to take us to considering the ordinance of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, the Greek word translated here as participation is the same Greek word used for fellowship in our text today. So the, the, the relationship there is, is tight. 
saying this to say that, <clears throat> that we fellowship with Jesus every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, proclaiming his death until he comes again, and receiving nourishment for our souls from the living Christ right now. That's one of many reasons I love our, our pattern of taking the Lord's Supper together every Lord's Day when we gather. So we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, but we do need to also mention our fellowship with the Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity who lives within each repentant sinner, making us a temple to our God. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is a, actually a common benediction, we say it here often, uh, brings it all together for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're actually to expect fellowship with the Holy Spirit as we're being progressively sanctified through our Christian, our Christian life. Again, another quote, Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2 promises, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, the, the word participation was used. But you can hear the, the expectation of sweet fellowship just in those two verses alone. right? Encouragement from Christ, comfort from love, fellowship with the Spirit, affection, sympathy. We have a compassionate triune God who loves his ransomed people. And he wishes to supply our every need, including encouragement in our darkest moments. Fellowship when we feel all alone. The sympathy of, of a great high priest tried in every way, like us, yet sinless. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is so close, he knows our thoughts, even when we don't. When we clumsily pray and, and only groans come out. He actually takes those earnest groans and makes them into suitable petitions before the throne of grace. That is a tremendous fruit of close fellowship with our God. The next aspect of fellowship is with the community of the saints, the local church, the ecclesia. John doesn't forget to remind his audience that, that the gathering of the saints is crucial to the life of the believer. He says in verse 3, that you too may have fellowship with us. We've been called into, into fellowship with one another. Just like in Acts 2.42, where the disciples had everything in common, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Right? We, do, we do the same thing today. Not only the breaking of bread at the Lord's table, but also when we go in a short while to a feast in the Thunderdome. In fact, we've remarked at different times how well RBC fellowships together. And our lunches are one glowing example of that. I actually want to thank you for your earnest desire to fellowship together, to mutually encourage one another with your company and with your cooking. 
We have fellowship in the gospel that has saved our souls. We have a commonality together that the world can't explain. But it's also a commonality that we can discuss rather easily when we sit at tables together. What an amazing paradox that is. The world and the, the agenda are radically anti-fellowship. Every dark spiritual force in creation and the hateful bent of every human heart seeks to divide and keep people apart. I don't have to explain this. You know this. It's at work in our government. It's at work in our workplaces. Sometimes it's even at work in our own families. But the saving gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the reconciling message that breaks down every barrier that people put up between each other and that the world loves to reinforce. It not only reconciles us to our God, it reconciles us to each other. It breaks down issues of ethnicity, of socioeconomic status, of city folk versus country folk, or maybe people who prefer to drink bad coffee and still those who have learned a better way. That's a minor issue. But these things cannot possibly stand in the way of those who know the word of life and proclaim him faithfully, gathering together regularly to glorify him. If we have fellowship with Yahweh our God, we can and should have fellowship with his gathered church. Now, this, this isn't always easy, but every tool is at our disposal to share our life together in gospel peace. This, this issue of, of fellowship is one that John finds especially important. Um, and he actually makes many more references to fellowship later in 1 John. But there are other New Testament epistles that do have references that we actually sometimes refer to as the one another's. These form a good instruction for us to develop a healthy relationship, a healthy fellowship among the saints. Clothing ourselves with humility toward one another. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Loving one another earnestly. These are all instructions just from 1 Peter. The writer of Hebrews is quick to remind us not to forsake the gathering of the saints and that we should stir one another up to good works. Paul encourages us to encourage one another and build each other up in love. And he actually commends the Thessalonians for doing so, and I would commend the members of RBC for doing the very same. And then finally, John emphasizes complete joy in the word of life, yet another outcome of knowing the word of life. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Recall from just a few minutes ago the passage from 1 Peter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The Christian life is to be one of joy. 
And this is one of the reasons I've been very grateful for the ministry of John Piper, who's been a huge influence in, in my life in this particular area. The great emphasis of his ministry is to promote joy in the life of believers. Now, so here's, here's some of the interlink of all these things together. Knowledge of the word of life and the proclamation of him, as well as accompanying fellowship with him and in him with the church, leads to rich, unsurpassed joy. Knowledge of the word of life and the proclamation of him, as well as accompanying fellowship with him and with the church in him, leads to rich and unsurpassed joy. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? Fellowship with our thrice holy God comes with joy. Now that doesn't mean that we'll be happy in every circumstance or that we'll never be down or feel sad, but instead the endurance of joy carries us through terrible circumstances. A great example would be Paul and Silas in prison. They could have grumbled about this letdown. They could have been fearful of the danger to their lives. But instead, their joy came through in the fact that they sang praises to God and they prayed and all their fellow prisoners heard them. If Yahweh had seen fit to end their lives in that jail cell and end their earthly ministries, their joy would have been the same. Perhaps even greater. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The life of the Christian isn't a life full of fear. The life of the Christian isn't a life full of dread. The life of the Christian isn't one of crushing sorrow. Now, we will experience fear and dread and sorrow from time to time during our lives, but those are not the enduring characteristics of the Christian experience. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and never will overcome it. In fact, Christ, who is the light, bestows grace upon grace to his people. To quote one of my favorite commentators, Matthew Henry, in this passage, he wrote, Terror and astonishment may well attend Mount Sinai, but exultation and joy attend Mount Zion, where appears the eternal word, the eternal life, manifested in our flesh. The mystery of the Christian religion is directly calculated for the joy of mortals. It should be joy to us that the eternal Son should come to seek and save us that he has made a full atonement for our sins, that he has conquered sin and death and hell, that he lives as our intercessor and advocate with the Father, and that he will come again to perfect and glorify his, per his persevering believers. The glory of Christ, the renown of the Father, the reliance on the ministry of the Holy Spirit should drive our lives to joy. That's, that's Yahweh's design for his children. After all, John doesn't just speak of, of joy alone here. 
he says that our joy may be made complete. How can one even quantify complete joy? Ever thought about that? Could we actually show a particular point in our lives where we can say that we have the most joy that a person can have? I say no. I actually think the human soul has the capacity for increasing joy the more we behold the giver of joy. The longer we live under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, being joined to the local church, being more and more conformed to the image of Christ in sanctification, the more joy we will experience. We will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This life of joy is an eternal life. And to paraphrase a, a comment from John Calvin, the Christian who truly perceives his or her own fellowship with Yahweh will be satisfied in Him alone and will not burn with desire for other things. In order to have this life of joy, we must know Christ. We must know the word of life. We can only receive the gift of complete joy and myriad other gifts that he gives once we have known him and we've known the redemption purchased through his blood and righteousness. In fact, then we find joy in the proclamation of the word of life, both in hearing him proclaim to us and also when we proclaim him to others. I think a quote from Charles Spurgeon gets at the heart of this very well. No joy ever visits my soul like that of knowing that Jesus is highly exalted and that to him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is not to sorrow but to joy that the great king invites his subjects when he glorifies his son, Jesus. Knowing the word of life and proclaiming him, we have joy in fellowship with the entire Godhead as we receive grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Yahweh our God mercifully provides us with fellowship with him in this way and in ordinary fellowship with each other, the ransomed children of God, those who have tasted and seen that Yahweh is good. And all of these things together compose a life of complete joy in God our Savior. Do you know Christ, the word of life? Have you proclaimed Christ, the word of life? Do you have fellowship with Christ, the word of life? Do you find complete joy in Christ, the word of life? I would earnestly call on you today, if you have not known Jesus Christ the Lord, to repent of your sins and believe, for today is the day of salvation. And I pray that you've heard him proclaimed clearly this morning in our entire worship service up till now. He has made himself manifest. He is knowable. He is imminent. He saves his people from their sins. Call on his name if you never have. Be forgiven of your sins. Be reconciled to your creator. Live in the complete and all-surpassing joy that only the word of life can deliver. And for my brothers and sisters who have 
and do love him whom their physical eyes haven't seen, haven't seen yet. My enduring prayer for you is to not grow weary. I pray that your joy will ever increase, that your fellowship with Yahweh and with your brothers and sisters here will only increase in sweetness, that your knowledge and proclamation of our sovereign God will be clear and will be satisfying because that is his will for you. So whether repenting unto life today or if you've been walking with Christ for many years, I bid you come and welcome to Jesus Christ, the word of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your glorious truth is, uh, is too much for us to, to consider at times. The, the, the weight of glory that you communicate to us through your word. I pray that uh, as we've considered your word today that you will restore our hearts, that you will refresh the joy that you've given us if it's, if it's burning out. I pray that you would continue to open our ears, open our eyes, that we would constantly seek fellowship with you in study of the word, discussing the word together, and that your church would continue to, to gather and support each other, encourage and stir one another up to good works for your glory alone, not for ours, not to make ourselves look good in our own eyes or in others' eyes, but only to see the image of Christ worked out in each of our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for the mercy that is ours in Christ. May we be ever grateful to you for all that you've purchased for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.